Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode... <laughs> I almost forgot. Okay. Episode 52, Ovid's Heroides. Brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books, literature, and this month, poetry. And we take a look at whatever we choose and we decide whether it is worthy of its reputation. Is it required reading or not? This should be an interesting little change of pace here. So I am leading us through this. I think it would be quite shocking if my co-host were leading us through some Latin literature. But he's with me. He is tolerant of all things that I choose. It's my good friend, Tom Penners. Hello. (laughs) Now, this is the first. I know this is poetry. We don't do a lot of poetry. I, I, I know the Aeneid is considered an epic. Is considered an epic poem? I can't remember. It is, yeah. Yeah. It is. Okay, so this would be the second lengthy work of poetry we've done. Yes. Yeah, I guess the only thing that, you know, would separate it, you know, if I were to, to what is it, split hairs, is the mm-hmm. fact that it, this is broken up, and it's yeah. more like epistolary, whereas that one's just yeah. like an ongoing. But yes, I mean, similar structure, and I'll talk a bit about the the meter and everything but yes so it is our second how have i you like poetry way more than i do how am i the one in this uh, duo that's chosen two out of two poems yeah you know the funny thing is is that like if if there are there are two epics that are on my list 
I know. For us to cover in their entirety. (laughs) What do you think they are? Well, I would say Beowulf. Yes. And the Odyssey. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So, and then, and then I guess sections of the Canterbury Tales Mm. would actually also be, you know, because I, I, I would never want to do that entire thing, and and I'm possibly, maybe some Arthurian legend or something like that, but the Odyssey. So, but um, like a lot of my interest in poetry is on like poets and it's more modern stuff. So it's not of the, I don't know. It would have to be a, it would have to be a, um, a special episode or, or I'd have to find a way to construct it. If we were going to do like, like the way I do poetry in the classes that I teach, mm-hmm. because you know, it's, you know, we're, cause we're talking about stuff that's like, you know, uh, 25 lines instead of, you know, the hundreds or thousands of lines that are in an Epic poem. So yeah. I remember actually when I first asked, if I could do it this way, because I was going to ask for excerpts, because I was going to ask for excerpts rather than the full work, and you had wondered if it was Canterbury Tales, because you had thought mm-hmm. about doing that later on, and just so we could yeah. space it out and choose different ones, and I said, I don't think I'll ever choose Canterbury Tales, so you <laughs> have complete ownership over that whenever you want to do that. And not even that, like I said, you wife of Bath, and that's about it, you know? Yeah. So. I don't even know. I remember doing them. I mean, this is for another episode, but I remember doing them in senior English, which was like a mm. dual dual course. Dual enrollment? Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, I couldn't tell you which ones. I'd have to really, like, look through the list and, and figure out, oh, yeah, I think maybe it was that one that we did. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a new adventure. Yeah. But this is, this is fun, at least for me, because I, I could choose so many... I mean, if this were a poetry podcast or a Latin <laughs> classics podcast, mm-hmm. it'd be super fun to do a bunch of different things with, with the wonderful authors that there were in ancient times. But I thought that this was a fun and unique opportunity, especially since we know several of the characters, both of we've got some overlap there. And one of them we've already talked about with Dido. And just, yeah, to give the women the voice and see whether it was worthwhile or not. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting. There were a couple more. So behind the curtains, I did email, I think, Tom, and I asked him if I could just send him a list of women's names and could he tell me which ones he was not aware of and or maybe which ones he was aware of and so that's how we whittled down the list to Penelope, Dido, Medea, and Helen but there were some other ones uh, which it would have actually been an issue because one of the questions I have is how well do these work for people who aren't really in the know aren't good with the subject material or the yeah, I guess the the subject matter or the the source material is the the better word, or just doesn't know who this person is. So it would have been a good experiment to pick someone like Dianar or something to Hercules just to see how well you would have managed. But we picked ones that we're mm-hmm. both aware of, and I assume, well, I think we might both be on the same page of of which source materials we've read and which ones we've not, because I've actually not read the Argonautica nor Medea. So that might be the only one that I'm aware of the character, but I'm not as aware of the the source material. Uh Uh-huh. But anyways. 
Well, uh, any 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 other pre prefaces you would like to get through before I go into? Oh, I guess never mind. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> We've got history with with this, which I guess could be unique to a certain extent. You know, what history do you have with the Herodes, or what history do you have with uh, the source material, which would of course be um, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Argonautica, and then the Iliad. With the Herodes this is actually the first time I've ever heard of it. My knowledge of anything regarding Ovid was um, the Metamorphoses, mm, and even mm -hmm. then, I really haven't. I don't think I, if I've read any of his stuff, it's been maybe an excerpt um, in a college class, and I don't remember anything of it. As far as the source material, obviously, have read the Odyssey and the and, and the the Aeneid because uh, we covered the Aeneid on this show, and I teach excerpts from the Odyssey, and you know, I've read the Odyssey all the way through at least once or twice the Argonaut that is not something I've actually read in full my knowledge of Jason and the Argonauts comes from like movies and then stuff like Edith Hamilton's mythology and you know just kind of like retellings of of the stories that are more summary than they are original texts so to speak I don't know like the only Medea I've ever read was the play by Euripides mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's the same Medea and then the Iliad, um, as I've mentioned at one time or another before to both students and maybe even you, was the uh, epic poem that I literally threw across my freshman <laughs> dorm room in frustration. So um, you have tested the D'Urbervilles yeah. and I have the Iliad. Yeah, I guess I so. can put in that clip again. People might get annoyed if I keep using that clip <laughs> from uh, Silver Linings Playbook. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah. So, but this was interesting because he sent me, you did, you were like, do you know these women? I was like, what? And a few of them I didn't. So we kept this and um, yeah, so it was, it was, I was looking forward to this because when you explain what this is and I got a little bit of like, you know, background on what this was, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because it wasn't anything I'd ever really heard of. And it, I think it's interesting to see the same story from other perspectives, especially things that mm -hmm. even at the time were well-known stories. Yeah, absolutely. So with the Odyssey, I feel like I've been aware of a lot of these before I had read it actually so i mm -hmm. remember armand asante in, in the odyssey hey, and uh, vanessa have... williams and bernadette peters i have that on dvd i actually really <laughs> like that uh, I, I thought remember, it was really well done i think so i th i think it was like a four-night epic event or it was long mm -hmm. maybe it was a two-night event on tv because it's, it's, it's a two it, it, it there's like two parts of it okay. on the dvd you actually have to turn the dvd over or whatever oh yeah so it's, it was like a two night mini series yeah. and for a series on tv it was um a really really well done and b like lived up to the violence yeah i would agree thing. yeah i mean especially yeah at the end the banquet yeah super violent yeah so that would have been my first, I think, introduction to Odysseus, and I don't know how or why my parents allowed me to watch that, because I'm pretty sure I was preteen at that point in time, because I remember living in Hamburg. 
But I really loved mythology, so that might have been that gateway into there and, and being allowed uh, to watch that. And I was a huge fan of Jason and the Argonauts, that older film as well, so I was aware of these people. Mm-hmm. So the Odyssey I hadn't read until college. I remember speed reading that oddly for an interview because I interviewed for this school, and she mentioned the Odyssey and asked if I had read it, and I said no. And so I went home because I had like a second part of the interview. I went home and read it all just so I could, you know, have a discussion with her, which is really interesting. But hmm. uh, I did not get that job. So, oh, well. Sorry. And it's fine. The Aeneid, of course, you know my history with that. That was teaching it for several years, uh, read it in college, read it for funsies. That's my favorite epic. And then the, yeah, Jason and Argonauts, I think that really would be my only connection with Medea, which, of course, they ended on a happy note that Jason and Medea are together. You're right, Medea by Euripides is, of course, about that, uh, about Mm -hmm. her. But the source material would have been, well, I guess he could have gotten it from that. But, yeah, the Argonautica would have been following Jason. And then with the Iliad, I had read that also. Let me think. Oh, I must have read that actually my first year teaching because I wanted some background to the Aeneid because there's that Mm -hmm. connection to both of them. And I had already read the Odyssey, so I needed to read the Iliad. And I remember giving some, you wouldn't have liked this, in their summer assignment, which would have, I guess, been my my second year. So the summer assignment for my second year, I gave them some excerpts to, to read to connect to the the Trojan War and all of that. So that's my, yeah. Oh, and sorry, with Ovid, oh, man, this guy. I I both love him and feel so bad for him because he just, <laughs> he made some mistakes along the way and he got exiled and it was not a fun time for him and he tried to suck up to Augustus to get back from his exile. It's terrible. But Metamorphoses probably are my favorite work from him. I think he's probably most well-known for that, but also like the art of, of lovemaking, you know, Ars Amatoria. And then I also took a class with one of my favorite professors at UVA, John Miller, called The Fosti, which is all about the calendar, which sounds like, oh my gosh, that'd be so boring. But he goes through specific holidays and just the way that he does it and um, mm. what was, was really great. So I guess this would be maybe my third or fourth work that I've done with Ovid. So he's certainly, he's up there as, I think, being a great poet and probably one of the the best Latinists, I think, that I've studied, or one of my favorites. But yeah, I guess, I guess that would be my history. All right. Okay, so we'll talk about the history of this guy. Full name Publius Ovidius Naso, and Naso means that he most likely had a large nose. I'm not kidding, that's really what that would mean. Uh, Just like Caesar means hairy, but it was a fun take on it because he was actually, Caesar did not have a lot of hair, so it was like a joke. Anyways, so uh, Ovid, like most Roman men of letters, he was a provincial. He was born at Solmo, a small town about 90 miles east of Rome. And the main events of his life are described in an autobiographical poem in the Tristia, the Sorrows, which I'll talk about a bit later in this. His family was old and respectable and sufficiently well-to-do for his father to be able to send him and his elder brother to Rome to be educated. At Rome, he embarked under the best teachers of the day on the study of rhetoric, which, you know, per usual for some of the wealthy. Ovid was thought to have the makings of a good orator, but in spite of his father's admonitions, he neglected his studies for the verse writing that came so naturally to him. 
So similar to Virgil, I guess, who decides to go his own route. As a member of the Roman knightly class, so you can tell that he's wealthy because only the knights can afford horses, and horses are expensive. Ovid was marked by his position and intended by his father for an official career. First, however, he spent some time at Athens and traveled in Asia Minor and Sicily. Afterward, he dutifully held some minor judicial posts, the first steps on the official ladder. It gave the curses a norm. But he soon decided that public life did not suit him. From then on, he abandoned his official career to cultivate poetry and the Society of Poets. His first work, The Amores, which are the loves, had an immediate success and was followed in rapid succession by uh, the Epistolae Herodum, or Herodes, the Medicamina, Faciae, or Cosmetics, or the Art of Beauty, Ars Amatoria, the Art of Love, and the Remedia Amoris, Remedies for Love, all reflecting the brilliant, sophisticated, pleasure-seeking society in which he moved. The common thing, I mean, seriously, Ars Amatoria would tell you which specific statue to stand by if you want to pick up a girl at the games. So there you go. The common theme of those early poems, of course, is love and amorous intrigue, but it's unlikely that they mirror Ovid's own life very closely. Of his three marriages, the first two were short-lived, but his third wife, of whom he speaks with respect and affection, remained constant to him until his death. At Rome, Ovid enjoyed the friendship and encouragement of Marcus Valerius Masala, the patron of a circle that included the poet Albius Tibullus, whom Ovid knew only for a short time before his untimely death. Ovid's other friends include the poets Horace, whom I recommend, and Sextus Propertius and the grammarian Hyginus. Having won an assured position among the poets of the day, Ovid turned to more ambitious projects. The You can either call them the Metamorphoses or the Metamorphoses and the Fausti. Uh, the former was nearly complete, the latter half finished, when his life was shattered by a sudden and crushing blow. In the in 8 uh, Common Era, or 8 AD, the Emperor Augustus banished him to Tomi, which is near modern Constantia. Uh, or Romania, on the Black Sea. It's very sad. You should look at the map to see where he was thrown. The reasons for Ovid's exile will never be fully known, but, well, we'll we'll get to this. Ovid specifies two, he believes, his Ars Amatoria, because Augustus, remember at that time, uh, because, if you recall, in my Aeneid, not summary, but talking about the history, when Augustus came into power, he really wanted to remodel Rome and bring back those old morals, worship of the gods, and and really clean up the town. So to have someone that's basically teaching people how to, you know, be promiscuous almost and, and pick up girls and things, this is not the type of guy you want hanging around while you're trying to clean up Rome. So there you go. He also cites an offense which he does not describe beyond insisting that it was an indiscretion, as in Latin, error, not a crime, scaleless. Of the many explanations that have been offered of that mysterious indiscretion, the most probable is that he had become an involuntary accomplice in the adultery of of Augustus's granddaughter, the younger Julia, who is also banished at the same time. In 2 BCE, her mother, the elder Julia, had similarly been banished for immorality, and the Ars Amatoria had appeared while that scandal was still fresh in the public mind. Those coincidences, together with the tone of Ovin's reference to his offense, suggest that he behaved in some way that was damaging both to Augustus's program of moral reform and to the honor of the imperial family. 
since his punishment, which was the milder form of banishment called relegation, did not entail confiscation of property or loss of citizenship, his wife, who was well-connected, remained in Rome to protect his interests and to intercede for him. He never ceased to hope for pardon. He was keeping up the Tristia and the Epistulae Exponto, which are letters from the Black Sea or just the sea, but neither Augustus nor his successor Tiberius uh, or Tiberius relented, and there are hints in later poems that Ovid was becoming reconciled to his fate when death finally released him. So he's a poor guy. So the specifically the Herodes, uh, dating them is a bit difficult, but the composition of the single Herodes, which of which we read three, there we do have a double that I mentioned and I've neglected to tell you public listeners of <laughs> of that initially, but I'll talk about it. Probably represents some of Ovid's earliest poetic efforts, possibly about twenty five about between twenty five and sixteen BCE which tracks well, at least when you think about the Aeneid being written like slightly before that so that Ovid can build off of what Virgil did with Dido and everything because there are some similar similes being used and ideas so you can tell that that had to have been there first. The double poems were probably composed later and the collection as a whole was not published until somewhere between 5 and uh, 5 BC and 8 CE or AD. Ovid claimed to have created an entirely new literary genre of fictional epistolary poems. Whether this is true or not, the Herodes certainly owe much of their heritage to the founders of Latin love elegy, Gallus, Propertius, and Tibullus, as evidenced by their meter and their subject matter. They may not have the great emotional range or the often sharp political irony of Ovid's metamorphoses, but they do have keen portraiture and a matchless rhetorical virtuosity. These are not my words, people. Written <laughs> written throughout in elegant elegiac couplets, which I will talk about that briefly. The Herodes were some of Ovid's most popular works among his assumed primary audience, audience of Roman women, as well as being highly influential with later poets. They are among the few classical depictions of heterosexual love from the female perspective, because you have to think about Sappho, that's why they specify heterosexual there. And although their apparent uniformity of plot has been interpreted as encouraging a tragic female stereotype, which I would like to talk about, each letter gives a unique and unprecedented perspective into its respective story at a crucial point in time. Unfortunately, yeah, all, all the tragic climaxes, I would say. So just to talk a bit about the meter, I don't think I talked about it with Aeneid. It's it's hard to do it speaking and not visual, but the Aeneid was, is composed of, frequently epic poetry, is composed of dactylic hexameter, which means that there are six feet per line, and each of those feet could be made up of a dactyl, <laughs> dactylic, or a spondy. So a dactyl is a long, short, short, and a spondy is a long, long. Whereas, correct me if I'm incorrect, of course, Tom, Shakespeare's qualitative meter, I believe, is that what it's called? Latin is quantitative, so it's all about um, the value of the syllables and, and whether they're long or short. So if it's like a diphthong, a diphthong is two vowels that come together to make one sound. For example, A-E wouldn't be I-E, but I, it actually sounds like an I, that sort of thing. Is it qualitative, yeah. since I hear you breathing? I, I 
think so. Is that so? how you would describe it? Okay. I'm, it's certainly not. Because I, I, yeah. I, I know that I am a pentameter, so it's 10 beats per line. Yeah. And um, the stress is on the second syllable. Like, so it's it's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Yeah. So my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, then her breasts are done. If hair be wires, then black wires are on her head. I, so, you know, that's not it. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. That's that's iambic pentameter. So you're you're hitting into the second syllable. But I I honestly like the terms like that are okay. I, and this is like you know I'm gonna go turn in my English teaching license because <gasps> I probably should know these things. But it's just not something that like you know we tend to cover like in, in those exact terms. But if gotcha. you were to if you're, if I were to look it up, I'd be like, oh yeah. You're, so I'm going to say that you're you're right, and that's that's how I just remember iambic pentameter as far as what syllable is stressed. Sure. And just to, on that, just to, I guess, connect, even though my might be like, I guess, what, uh, non-stressed? My miss, because you said mistress was the, correct? Yeah, my mistress eyes are nothing, yeah. But yeah, that wouldn't I'm... be true if you had mistress somewhere else. It could be completely different, correct? No, it's 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 in the line. It's not in the word. Okay, yeah. So there's the difference so, right there. That's what I was yeah, yeah, I was thinking about. Yeah. So that's true of you know of Shakespeare there. Whereas with Latin, for the most part, these words are going to have the same quantity wherever oh, they are. There might okay. be some exceptions, uh, like if there's a word that ends in a. Uh, a vowel and the next word mm -hmm. begins one you actually lose one of those syllables there and the the words merge which is uh, called illusion that, but that's yeah. interesting where whereas in shakespeare it depends on where the Correct. word is yeah. in the text yep, too yep, yep. and even in the plays not every character speaks that i am a pentameter as mm -hmm. we noted in in the two plays we've done yeah. so yeah, so he can't really manipulate uh, those. So he can switch the words around and everything, but whatever, if it's long or short, it, it for the most part will stay, which is really interesting to think about that. They've really got to work. <laughs> They've got to work with this line. They don't have a lot to do with And that's why sometimes things, you know, the verb might be halfway down the page because he, that's where he had to put it. So anyway, so that was a lot about dactylic hexameter. So Elgiac couplets is a pair of sequential lines in poetry. Uh, the first one is dactylic hexameter. The second one is dactylic pentameter, so five feet instead of six, and it's a bit confusing how it is. Again, it's just for me to talk about it is... <laughs> It's it's better if you go look it up to see what it looks like, and then if you have any questions, you can email me, and I'll, I'll better explain it. But what's really interesting about these is that if you look at the Aeneid, for example, yes, maybe two lines might work together if it's a sentence, but it's really looking at the whole, like how does this section work all together? Whereas with elegiac couplets, the couplets alone can work by themselves. Like you can pull them out, and it totally makes sense as well as working with the, the the context of the whole thing. So it's unique in that, um, which, you know, reading this in English, we've talked about this before with Les Mis and with the Aeneid, any of the, the second language works that we've done, that you are losing something. But I think for the most part, like even the one that I had uh, looked up, I don't know which one Tom had used, it, it somewhat works like they do a pretty good job of, of translating and you kind of retain those those two lines together and then working as the whole i think that's it yeah just that the elegiac couplet is said to be used for themes that are less lofty than that of epic 
Yeah, so dactylic hexameter is just the thing to use if you're really talking about something huge, which is interesting when you come upon, like, Lucretius, who's talking about the nature of things and atoms and things like that, and he decides to use dactylic hexameter to make this scientific poem into an epic. So that's interesting. But this one, so we're talking that it's got an epic feel to it, but it's not It's not epic, um, which I think could be potentially just because of the subject matter and having women, he, he might not want to elevate it as high as or, you know, put these women as high as their uh, their partners. But that's potentially a discussion for for later on. Okay, I think that's it. So plot synopsis, pretty easy. I was going to write it out on my own, and then I found a place that have short little plot synopsis. So the synopses. So that's uh, I'll do this. So letter one is Penelope to Ulysses. Penelope, oh, aka Odysseus, but it's Ulysses and Latin. Penelope, wife of Ulysses, who is the Greek hero of the Trojan War, of course, ignorant of the cause of her husband's absence after the fall of Troy, uh, and solicitous for his return, chides him for his long stay and urges him to come home to his wife and family, as he now has no reasonable (laughs) excuse for his absence. Then letter seven is Dido to Aeneas, Queen Dido of Carthage, who has been seized with a violent passion, man, poor lady, seized with a violent passion for Aeneas, tries to divert him from his intention to leave Carthage in order to pursue his destiny in Italy and threatens to put an end to her own life and I should say the unborn child if he should refuse her. Letter 12, Medea to Jason, the enchantress Medea, who aided Jason in his quest for the Golden Fleece and fled with him, charges him with ingratitude and perfidy. Is that right? Perfidy or perfidy? I'm going to say perfidy. (laughs) Okay. Just, yeah, I was so, just waiting. Yeah. I was like, Oz will tell me soon. I'm just waiting for him to unmute. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Charges him with ingratitude and perfidy after he transfers his love to Creusa of Corinth and threatens a speedy revenge unless he restores her to her former place in his affections. And then our dual letter. So I said it was just going to be Helen to Paris, and then I forgot that she's responding to Paris. So you could potentially just read 17 because really in her response she's well he of it i guess but she is addressing each of his points so you can get a sense of what he said but it's interesting to see what paris's perspective is so letter 16 paris to helen the Trojan prince Paris, deeply enamored of the beautiful Helen of Sparta, informs her of his passion and insinuates himself into her good graces, eventually resorting to promises that he will make her his wife if she will flee with him to Troy. It also gives you some background into how the Trojan War Well, I shouldn't say that. It gives you background into the judging contest with the goddesses. He brings that in there, which is interesting. And then finally, letter letter 17, Helen to Paris. In response, Helen at first rejects Paris' proposals with a counterfeit modesty before gradually opening herself more plainly and ultimately showing herself quite willing to comply with his scheme. Oh, dear. Okay. Okie dokie. Well, Tom? Did you enjoy these four slash five epistles? I found them really interesting. The Penelope, I obviously had an investment in the three that involved the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. So the Penelope to Ulysses, and I think I texted you and said I'm pro- I may actually use the Penelope to Ulysses one in my ninth grade English honors class if I ha- if I have the time because I, I 
and I was trying to place it within the epic, like at one point, I think it's at the point in like the first four or five books before Telemachus has returned home. Because remember, Athena takes him, basically tells him to go all over Greece and, and, and talk to everybody to see if he can find out what, where his father is, where he what he's really doing is a finding out who his father is. And B, the audience is finding out what happened to all the people who went over the Trojan War. Like we're getting a little bit of a kind of where are they now aspect to it. It's not when they have returned, although she knows who she knows who uh, the 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 allies are. Mm-hmm. It says the unwarlike ones are three in number: a wife with no strength, <laughs> old Laertes, and Telemachus, your son. And I think I think a wife with no strength is Penelope. Yeah. She's she's referring to herself. So at this point, Odysseus's mother is already dead. And um, and then she does mention, though, uh, the faithful guardian of this filthy sty makes up the another three, along with the herdsman and your very ancient nurse. So he is having a little fun with the fact that those are the three people who assist Odysseus Telemachus when they arrive at the palace with Odysseus in disguise, because remember, Odysseus, who came up with the Trojan horse is his own Trojan horse at the end of the Odyssey. And uh, so she's, she's kind of like, I, I, I would imagine the audience would know who all those characters are. And I'm kind of like, I see what you did there of it. I liked that. So I'm like, I, I should use this. Um, and the Paris to Helen and Helen to Paris one, um, I thought it was, uh, I, I really enjoyed that because I don't know much about, I've never read any original quote, original source material, which, you know, is suspect because it's hundreds of years of people rewriting the story. Mm-hmm. But uh, the only time thing I've ever read about Helen in Paris is just, again, it's like summary courtesy of people like Edith Hamilton or, you know, or, or more modern retellings of it. And, and uh, the Dido to Aeneas was interesting because, you know, of what we had read and Medea to Jason, um, I didn't have as much investment in, but, you know, so I found these, I found these fascinating. Um, and it does kind of tie into, uh, your first question there too. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So people, I, I don't know. I feel like I could have done way more prep work than this. Oh, I guess <laughs> I'll talk about my history. Wait, did I like it? Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, yes, did you like it? I did enjoy it. I, I guess it does tie and tie. I could have done way more prep work. I had every intention of actually translating the ones that we were going to do. I had them printed out and everything. And I just, I don't know, when it came down to it, I was like, I'm not in a good mind space for this, but I just need to sit down and do some Latin. But I did really enjoy them. I think, I was going to say some more than others. Like, clearly, I don't know if that's true, though. But some of them were easier to get on board with and feel something for than others, I think. I guess maybe we'll, I'll I'll get to what i mean by that later on but it was just great to hear i you know dido i've got a i i love dido i i feel always feel terrible for her and how she was portrayed in the end because she had such potential so reading that is always interesting and then the the paris and helen which was the first time that i read it was interesting in how well i i let's just say I yes, that's a simple answer. Is yes, I enjoyed it. There, I uh, yeah, that's it. I don't know what I'm doing. Still talking. Okay, so 
Well, I think there's a conversation to be had about Helen yes. and why she ends up going with Paris, because I've heard different interpretations of it. So and I don't even know what to make of it. Yeah. You know, sometimes she's given. Uh, more, yeah, she's definitely given more of a voice, which I think we can talk about yeah. because you don't really. I mean, she does appear in the Iliad. Not mm. much, but you don't get this background necessarily. And then when no. you see her in book one of the Aeneid, like Aeneas is about ready to kill her. <laughs> well, yeah, and she's in the Odyssey as well because oh, Telemachus right. visits Sparta yep. and she's sitting as Menelaus. Now, it's it's been a while since I've read that particular book, so forgive me because when I teach the Odyssey, I tend to focus on the wanderings. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's due for a reread, but, but she is in the Odyssey as well. She's well known but the paris and helen interaction was kind of foreign to me Mm, yeah yep yep i okay so i guess we'll uh, what i was going to say because i kind of was going around and around is that we could potentially spend an entire episode on just one of these and really parse it apart and and get to know that and so that's you know i feel like more prep could have been done and and maybe you know am i not doing this work justice but to this our show has been i think like this anyways i think we we take a pretty good dive deep dive but it but i wanted to do a survey of of these um yeah. so i think giving respect to the work and that we're doing multiple rather than one but i just want to say that you could spend a lot of time mm-hmm. on just one of these so i've got overarching questions on the whole work i've got some that really some questions that were coming from particular letters that really spoke to me, some quotes that I want to kind of suss through and and figure out what it is. So that's that's what this is going to be like. So the first one was, yeah, you may have started to answer this, is do these women deserve to be heard? And just to clarify, like, what do you mean? I mean, by that, do their characters and roles in the source material actually actually warrant such attention that they're given their their voice and they're given a letter to their, their loved one? Yeah, I certainly think so, at least in the ones I'm looking at here. They are pivotal in their particular story. You know, this isn't um, Penelope or, or or Helen and and Medea. These, these are not minor characters. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't you know this isn't like a, a spinoff series <laughs> of of a of a movie like in a comic of a Admiral Akbar or whatever. You know, like somebody you know. No offense to Admiral Akbar <laughs> stands, but you know the guy was a peg warmer. And all of a sudden we're getting like this like deep look into it, you know, that because it's a money grab. These are people who who really do play a pivotal role in some part of that epic of, of whatever it is. You know, I go back to Penelope. She has an entire storyline through the Odyssey, mm-hmm. you know, and and Helen is a important her kidnapping, her seduction, whatever we want to call it, we'll get to it, is the spark that lights the fire of the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it's the it's the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand. You know, that that's basically the event. You know, Dido and, and you're familiar with Dido. So so yeah, like and and not only that, like one of the things that I always remind my students of is that like you know one of the reasons we have the Iliad and the Odyssey and and they're held in such regard partially is because these are the texts that survived, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I can imagine, and, and maybe this is just dumb speculation on my part. I can imagine that somewhere in ancient Greece and even ancient Rome, there were other stories about these women and they were just 
never written down or they were lost to time, you know, like who knows, you know, we only have so much. Um, so, so the fact that this is something that we have, I think is, is really good. And I, you know, we're both geeks, right? Mm -hmm. We always love seeing the, you know, we always love seeing, we always want more of a character. We always like seeing a little bit more of a character or, or their backstory and their relationships and those sorts of things. So yeah, like, you know, even on that level, I'm just like, yeah, give me more, especially if it lines up well with the original source material and doesn't um, retcon it or bastardize it or something. And I don't think these did. No, yeah. And I think we're, well, I mean, I'm going to be speaking for you, but I think we're both feminists too. To, mm -hmm. So to hear these women that are coming from a male-dominated genre, and yeah. this is, this, you know, whether Ovid was the first to do this and, and to create that route who knows he says he is but he does something pretty amazing here because no one wants to read this i think back then because you want your male heroes because the whole idea is that you're creating this hero or character that either one your race has a connection to or two is showing some sort of virtue um, or virtues that you're trying to live up to and who's going to want to now i'm just talking about back then who's going to want to live up to you know a, a virtuous woman or whatever like yeah i want to be how you know a young 12 year old boy says so that's not going to happen so to give them a voice is is really talking about amazing. back then have you have you been on youtube <laughs> <laughs> have you been thank you chan we man mean, you had like that down have there. you seen some of the misogynist YouTube videos oh, yeah. masquerading as criticism because I don't know they dared make a Captain Marvel movie. Uh, so I yes, know. anyway. Yeah, or Rose Tico. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, for no, or, I mean that just shows I'm, I'm that. I'm being the male and I'm interrupting. You. Well, that's yeah. Well, I'm used to it, but the, the, I, I guess that goes to show us that sometimes have not changed. The times have not changed. So, but yeah, I think they do deserve to be heard. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right that these weren't just minor characters. I mean, I was going to make a joke about Lavinia, but um, Ursula Le Guin gave her her own book, so it works out. And I think Ophelia has her own book, too, even though I despise that character. So yeah, they're not just like, like minor uh, characters, but characters yeah. that had a strong connection with mm -hmm. the hero that is uh, leading his epic. Uh, Paris is a bit, you could argue that either way, since he, <laughs> you know, wasn't the best of all the people. The other thing that Ovid does, I think, which I guess we're getting to the feminist question at the end, that was a shocking question, but he, he, I think, breaks some stereotypes because really back then women only fell into one of two molds they were sort of the seductress or temptress or you know sorceress or they were like the modest chaste wife who's you know waiting at home and so do we have them are they breaking those um, molds and, and coming out and, and showing a bit more and I feel like that's what he's able to do here but overall I mean that could be because we're geeks and we're really interested <laughs> in this but uh, I think people want to know I mean women back then who absolutely I could totally see them really loving this because they just sort of skirt over these characters and and there's not as much attention like well what about them and so they got that voice so just to have that back then for them I think yeah. is uh, really amazing so I guess maybe I will jump to that question because it was my second to last one but do you feel like these epistles could be considered feminist and there are still some problematic passages which I've actually um 
there are some quotes that I want to pull out, but do you think overall, yeah. like, is Ovid doing something that we are, you know, seeing now, but, but he was really pushing, pushing the envelope and maybe he didn't intend it, but, but they're coming out this way. I would say, yes, I would say it's like a proto feminist type of work because, you know, it's, this is ancient Rome. So that concept there our modern concept of feminism doesn't exist in ancient yeah. Rome. Um, and, and both Greece and Rome were very patriarchal. I mean, you only need to look at the Odyssey and see like just patriarchal <laughs> BS yeah. based between the behavior of Odysseus when he's gone for 20, 20 years and the behavior of Penelope. But I believe you, and it also kind of helps start that you mentioned Ursula Le Guin, you know, you mentioned Ophelia and there is kind of Ophelia has this like cult following uh, among uh, among feminist literary circles, you know, despite whether or not whether or not you, you like the character, you know, she is she is one of those characters who gets a lot of um, a lot of attention. And then there was um, there was the novel and or, or it was the series of novel, The Mists of Avalon. Oh, <gasps> yes. Yeah. So there is a there is a literary precedent for taking a woman female character from a famous mythological or epic story and putting them in the spotlight and expanding their story and doing something like this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Ovid was the first person to do it, but I certainly see some of the origins of that subgenre yeah. in what we're reading here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, oh man, with some of these, just giving them a voice period, I think is huge. That's why I think there, there's mm -hmm. some feminist lines in there or not really. I just have a feminist feel about it, I guess. And, I think showing their side and because you only have the male perspective in the epic and the way they're portrayed in the epic is not necessarily the most positive. So here, while, and we'll get to, well, I guess maybe I don't ask this about Medea, but even Medea, well, I guess I kind of do, but she, it stops before she kills the children, but she does mm -hmm. talk about her brother and the fact that he, dis, she dismembered him and you know, she would scatter the pieces so that it would distract her father because he was picking them up. So she even talks about that. So even though she's doing this horrible thing, it's like you get that perspective from her. So just giving, I think, these women their voices and having them struggle through not only love and abandonment, but some tough decisions that they they had to make, like had to make, like Dido being a, a ruler and fighting off invasion and all the stuff that came with her her background. Penelope also fighting off invaders, but just in a different way and trying to keep house, raise a child, care for an alien father. Apparently, I don't remember this in the source material, but apparently her own father is like chiding her to uh, be better. I don't remember um, that either, yeah. Yeah, and then Helen having to do like is this all I'm known for? Like I was taken once when I was probably seven years old by Theseus. Am I like always going to be known for this? Can I not be known as a chaste woman? So this, this just really heavy stuff, I think with them. And now I don't want to say, I don't think Ovid is a feminist necessarily just given his other mm. source materials, but I think that he, he's delving into to some really interesting stuff here. And so that's why I, I really like this. 
And it's not cool. whiny either. You know, no. I guess you could oh, agree, no. argue that it is, but I feel like, yes, they're pleading with their lovers, but they're also just really, it's not overly emotional that it doesn't make sense. Like, your points do not make sense. Where are you coming from? What is this doing? So I feel like strong maybe in their uh, emotions, but not crazy. Like, oh my gosh, get over yourself, lady. <sighs> Yeah, you're right. There's some like um, looking at I've got the Penelope one open in front of me. Like there is some real conviction in her voice that doesn't. So uh, which is not whiny and not, you know, oh, I wish you were here. There certainly is that. But it's not simpering. It's like she's she is alternately upset that he's gone and mad. Yep. And and that's a that's actually like a really that's a three dimensional in a sense, you know, like that, that really is a rounded out character. Here is somebody who is going to have mixed emotions about the fact, you know, there's going to be bitterness about the fact that your husband is the only one who hasn't come back from a 10 year war, you know? And, and there's no confirmation of whether or not he's alive. And yet you're keeping the faith that he is alive. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I like the fact that, and, and I, and I like the fact that the other characters, they, they, again, they speak with a sort of conviction that does not seem milquetoast or whiny or doormatty or, or anything like that. There is some strength in their voices, which, um, which again, like you said, um, contributes to us looking at this as, you know, feminist in a sense. Absolutely. Do you feel like the women are given more agency than in the original epic that they appeared? It might depend on the character. I can't speak for Helen because, like I said, I I don't remember her much of her voice. And it's been a long time since I read that part of the Odyssey. Now, when it comes to Penelope, I think it kind of matches up because, remember, she a couple of things in her storyline is one of the things is the fact that she has held off Antonis and the other suitors for so long. And I don't think this is in the, in, in the, the Hurdies. It's, it's in the Odyssey that she was weaving Odysseus's funeral shroud, yeah. but kept undoing it every night. And she kept that up for three years because she was stalling. And, you know, and then she got sold out by one of her, um, her handmaidens yep. because, you know, and so, so that's, that shows some, some craftiness on her part. Now, granted, it also follows the trope in the Odyssey of like all uh, the majority of the women characters are are crafty and tri- tricky in some way, like because you got Cersei and Calypso and stuff. Mm-hmm. But and you know and and Athena. Uh, but you know she's Penelope shows herself as as smart and she has an agency. And even then, when Odysseus comes home, she is not at first convinced he is who he says he is, and she says. Well, the bed's been moved and she does it because she knows that the bed's impossible to move. It was literally carved out of a tree growing in the middle of the palace. And she knows that he um, he's only going to know that. So when he says, how the heck could the bed have been moved? Right. She's like, oh, it is you. So the fact that she is not gullible gives her some agency in the Odyssey. I think this just adds to it. Yeah. I was thinking mostly about uh, Dido. Of course, that would be the one that okay. I zero in on. Yeah, I was gonna. Say, I was gonna ask you what's your opinion on. Yeah, Dido? Yeah, I feel like she is given a bit more agency. I'm just thinking about, and I think we did read four when we um, of the excerpts that we did for that episode. But she, mm-hmm. her last speech. Well, I guess her second last speech when she when she's actually with 
Aeneas is so filled with emotion and mm-hmm. so angry at him. And even the prior speech, she had been making all the listing all these reasons for why he should stay, and and they didn't really connect. Here, I just felt like she has her emotions a bit more in check. The unfortunate thing, though, the the one that I the the fact that I struggle with it a bit with the the agency is that um, it's still her last speech that she's making. Like she's even saying like this is the end. You know, she's got the sword yeah. there that she had gifted to him. She talks about what her gravestone will be inscribed with. So that's the hard thing because all the other ones end at a certain point that it's oh what's going to happen next and you would only know if you were reading but here it's very clear that this is her end so i don't know you know what would have changed you know had she you can't mess with the original epic so had there been something else had he changed something i guess it would have been an out of continuity letter and, yeah. and she like pick herself up and and move on i think then i would have been like yeah you go dido uh but as it is oh man at least it gives her more of a voice, and I, I think she's a bit calmer. So I am appreciative of that, and, and I think she, she talks a bit more of herself and her journey. Um, so there's perhaps more respect due to her because she just – the character just takes a tumble um, in book four, and it's because of the gods, unfortunately. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so I would say she might gain it a bit, but I just have, a like, an internal struggle with it because we know what the end is, and, and she even ends yeah. it that way. So that's the unfortunate thing. But, yeah, like I said, you can't mess with the original. Um, with Helen, I feel like she – I feel like of the ones that I read that Helen was given the most agency, if only because mm. I – yeah, I don't really feel like I've read too much of Helen speaking for herself. And so to have her really go through all of that – and the summary said it was counterfeit modesty. And to a certain extent, I might agree, but I feel like she is – warring with herself like there is conflict here of i've got this reputation why do i have this reputation do i lean into this reputation that sort of thing but then also recognizing later on that you know if if something were to happen i would be called adulterous by anyone by you maybe paris but you would forget that the sin was also your own so i think there's that struggle there recognize she's with the husband so trying to have this this chastity that other women have but she it's never a characteristic that she's given and then warring with herself and and ultimately potentially considering being with paris so at least in agency at least given the thought that i know it's more than this but given a voice and to to work through all of those reasons but i think also considering like saying no like she could have said no it seemed like she was leaning towards no whether she was pretending or not so maybe she gets the most out of all of them but to a certain extent all of these women their hands are tied and so Mm -hmm. you know when i think of agency it's like what can they do for themselves to you know change the situation or the you know that sort of thing stick up for themselves action for themselves and really it's still dependent on the man penelope can do so much she does have a lot of agency i think um or some in the source Mm -hmm. material because she is able to do the trick with the web but once it's discovered it's like well now what do i do i've got to wait for my husband dido is just waiting for aeneas to leave because he's not coming back medea has been left and she can't get him back 
um, and then Helen is like going to be taken. So it's it's all dependent on on the male characters. So there's only a limit to to what they can do, anyways, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, I guess my follow-up question to that would be because they are well-known, they're characters from well-known stories of which the audience would know the outcome, right? Yeah. So uh, that are not those of Ovid. So they are. He is taking classic characters from other sources and expanding on them. They won't have as much agency because you're right. They can't like, especially when we're going to talk about Medea and you mentioned Dido, yeah. who both have tragic endings whereas penelope and helen don't necessarily there you are he is kind of hamstrung by what what they're what we know you know we know that dido's gonna what dido's gonna do we know what media is gonna do as opposed to say antigone Mm. who is more or less than a you know maybe maybe there was the myth of antigone that was known prior to sophocles writing the play but her character in terms of another character only really depends on the fact that she's the daughter of Oedipus, but that even that is not as prominent in the play as say her struggle with Creon. And um, now forgive me. It's been a very long time since I've read Antigone, but like, I feel like she's more of a fleshed out original character compared to these women who are more fleshed out, but they are still dependent on the plot of the epic in which they are. Mm-hmm. They're kind of bound yeah. to they're, they're they're dependent on the men because they're bound to the story, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So there's only so much he really can do. Yeah, I mean we we know we've experienced breaking that and and having that possibility, but I, I think that would be something maybe too far for the time for him to rewrite mm-hmm. what had happened, but. Yeah, this isn't what it's it, it, it he's not writing what if. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Do you, <laughs> do the voices in the epistles match the voices in the source material, do you feel like? Yes. I would agree. I don't. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean for you I, with Penelope, do you feel like Penelope sounds the it, same? It feels like yeah, I I get that feeling with Penelope. Yeah. Um I was going to I'm kind of deferring to you on Dido and then the other yeah. two. I'm just like, I'm well, just going to say yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, my my expertise is definitely going to be Dido. But, yeah, just listening to and, – and there were certain phrases I was, like, picking up when she's saying, like, that he was born, you know, living on a mountain. Venus is not mm-hmm. – so, like, man, this is coming straight from that using so many similes and when i was reading it and i flipped back to penelope and i'm like penelope may have used a couple but not as much as dido and i thought yeah this is totally so even beyond dido's voice you're total. i felt like i was hearing virgil's voice too so i felt for that particular epistle that ovid does a great job i'm sorry i haven't read the argonautica uh just to compare it yeah, but I feel like he does a good job. And with Penelope, I, I would agree just with my um, – it's been a long time, but I felt like I was I was listening to her. So I feel like he does a great job, which we always talk about that with comics. You know, is this the voice of the character? Does it sound like something they would say? And I would say that, yes, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like we already did, D? What What did we learn? I think so. Okay, that's I think I so, okay. You know, I, I feel like with pa- – I will say with Paris, I feel like I actually – came to really um like him even less than i did <laughs> i just i you know because yeah. to me it was just like it was i think i always viewed him as more of the abstract like again like only knowing the summary of the story i've always viewed this i've always viewed the story of paris helen the apple of discord and all of that 
as just the catalyst for an event. So I've never actually done much thinking about sure. his character. And with Helen, I've always wondered whether or not she went willingly. Yeah. And, you know, was it, and you know, um, and, or was it a, essentially uh, an abduction yep. and a rape as opposed to a, you know, a seduction mm-hmm. or whatever we want to call it. Seeing Paris spelled out here, I'm like, oh, you're a pig. <laughs> just a, jerk yeah. you know so so that was the only i guess that's the the only uh the only addition i have to that answer yeah there is a, a good dig at him i don't know what it is the latin is near me but i can't reach it uh that helen says i don't think it's meant as an insult but i kind of crack up when i read it that your body's fitter for venus than mars because paris mm-hmm. is you know posturing and saying that he can defeat Menelaus uh, because he says that no one will come over anyways but if he does I'll totally get him I would agree that Paris is I mean he's problematic overall you're given three choices but you go for the beautiful woman but the was it there was something that you had said that I was going to comment on Uh, oh yeah him being a pig yeah I was thinking when I was reading that I was thinking are these similar to romance novels like this guy right here? Would women want to be wooed like this? And I think perhaps yes, but also just he's clearly, I mean, just like commit adultery with me, which is mm-hmm. just really, especially given the times, like there's no moral value. You're taking someone else's possession. You are a guest in his home. It just is like uh, really problematic. Hospitality in Greece. Absolutely, yeah. Do you feel like, this was one of my questions, do you think he even gives her a choice? Because it seems like he does, he's like giving these options, and so it almost seems like uh, he's giving it, but I wonder if deep, more deeply is like, this is destined. I was told by Venus that I was going to get you. You're going to come with me. It seems like I'm giving you a choice, but really you don't have one. Or is he actually, is he giving her that option just by writing the letter? I think he was, I, I took it as, as he was being manipulative mm. and he doesn't think there's an option because the gods have yeah. decreed it essentially. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, he judged the contest and, took the bribe so in his mind this is made you know this he he has deserves her has earned her wants what's his you know like however you want to phrase it so i think in his mind it's not a choice yeah he is putting up the illusion that he is giving her a choice but he does mention you know the whole contest and everything so it's like you know the only the i don't think he uses the word fate and if he does but you know because you know fate is more powerful than than even the gods so i don't think he goes that far but he is certainly manipulating her into thinking that she has a choice in the matter but i think he he's also twisting things around so that you know there's really no choice she has (laughs) she's coming with him whether she likes it or not yeah Mm -mm -mm. man there are i actually of all the the letters i felt like i was picking out more quotes quotables that made me ponder in this mm. one, in this double letter, than I did other ones. So yeah. I just put quotes there. Um, let me try to formulate a question with some of them. We do have some themes in this one that I do want to talk about since we're already on this letter or these yeah, two sure, letters. Sure. I figure we'll do this one. But Paris at one point says, do you think beauty can ever be free from sin? And later on, Helen says that beauty is a burden. Let me formulate a question <laughs> other than what do you think about that? Is this like a male perspective 
uh, of beauty and he's trying to have two different sides to it that if you know a beautiful person of course they're going to be in trouble well actually i can connect all of these potentially so beauty can ever can beauty ever be free from sin and then later on helen says i already did the the beauty's burden but she says Perhaps because Neptune's heir Theseus took me by force, once taken I'm thought worthy of being taken twice. If I'd been seduced, the crime would have been mine since I was forced. What was I but unwilling? So actually I was thinking about this, just that victim blaming. Victim blaming, we still do it now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If someone has been sexually assaulted or raped you know, on the news, maybe mm -hmm. she was out at like 2 a.m. or something, uh, your knee jerk, many people's knee jerks will be like, well, go what she was wearing. Why was she out that late? And all that kind of stuff. Do you feel like there's that sense in this that whatever happens, which we know it happens with Helen, that it's her fault because she's so beautiful, because it's it's happened to her before, but it's got to be her because she was so beautiful, and this is that burden that she's talking about, that she can't be assumed innocent or chaste? I think so. I think I think that's, uh, that's part of it. Like, her reputation precedes her. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, I think I think that's that's a really good way to put it. That that's a lens, and and if we're we I know we are kind of looking at it through a more modern lens here, but at the same time, that is a that is something I've 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 heard. I, I remember years ago I was doing the Edgar Allan Poe. There's an Edgar Allan Poe poem called "To Helen." You know, it's it's an ode to Helen. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, and then we were I was talking. So I was I was asking. And we're talking about the whole idea of putting a woman on a pedestal, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked, did anybody know, you know, what the story was? You know, these were sophomores. And um, I said, you know, so why did she go? Uh, you know, what's the, you know, what's the deal? And I, and a student, because these are some of the more wonderful students I had back then, literally in my class called her a whore. And I stopped and I said, do not level that word at a woman. I was just like, no. I had to shut it down because I'm like, I'm sorry. No, that, you know, and, but, but there is that, there is that stigma mm -hmm. put on her and other, other women, especially, um, especially in the media, you're right. And especially by men. And yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think you are, I think you're perfectly right with that line of reasoning of what in some way she's, she's thinking about what's going on mm -hmm. too. So, yeah. And it, that other quote that I had mentioned earlier, uh, where she says, how often angry with me, you'd cry adulteress for getting my guilt also belongs to you. And then also at one point she mentions, you know, there are these modest women. Why can't I be considered one of those? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I feel like it's really interesting. I think she feels that burden of being beautiful. And I think at the time I'd have to do more, like at one point I would have done this, but with culture, culture at the time, the men would not have gotten in trouble with all of this. Oh, it's, always, no. it's always the, the women that, that certainly pay the price. Um, and you know, if someone were, I, I think of Lucretia, of course, and she was the catalyst where we go from the monarchy to the republic where she was raped and instead of living with that shame she killed herself so you know th there's that's the example right there you don't live with that shame and so yeah there's some heavy stuff going on here mm -hmm. but it's interesting because he's writing it but i think at the time there there would have been no like inward looking like oh this is actually problematic what i'm writing right now but yeah, yeah. looking at us uh or now and we, we've got the 
not really the forethought, right? But the past thought, <laughs> the afterthought of, of hindsight. Yeah, the hindsight. There we go. I think my last one with Helen is: Do you feel like she's redeemed at all? She is blamed for Troy falling. We we see through Aeneas's eyes in the Aeneid that he blames mm. her for everything for a Prem getting killed and and wants to exact his revenge on her. And uh, unfortunately, she's called a whore by you know all the Trojans and and all that you know. So unfortunately, your student is not the first. But she's yeah, yeah she's she's treated poorly even when she returns. Do you feel like this epistle redeems her at all? At least in the beginning, before she sort of admits there might be some attraction there. I think it makes an attempt. Okay. Um, I'm not 100% sure it's successful, but I, I think I have to read. Maybe I have to read more, or I don't know. I don't feel I don't feel like I'm an expert enough on on it to judge whether or not it's successful. But I will say that it it does make an attempt. Yeah, uh, I would agree. I, I think again, he is, his hands are tied. He's got to lead it up to a certain spot, so he leads it to almost a willingness, um, which would have been interesting if he had kept, I guess, the tone in the beginning, and she just mm-hmm. not be about it at all and so then it is like oh wow she was taken and she was she was taken unwillingly so leading up all that all because she says some really strong things and smart things i felt like oh wow this is really interesting and then she says i'll talk to my handmaidens and you can talk to them too (laughs) and i thought okay helen so oh well okay so we'll move off of those i know there's a penelope quote that we have yeah so Penelope, one of the quotes that I found from her, which she had some good quotables as well. This is just one that struck me. It's all right for him. She's talking about her father, Iscarius, to rebuke me continually. <laughs> so she's, I'm yours. I should be spoken of as yours. I'll be Penelope, wife to Ulysses, always. Do you feel like this connects well with the Odyssey? Does this then almost defeat the purpose of well, I guess what we think of as these letters that we want her to have her own agency, that she just she's fine with being, you know, wife to Ulysses. Um, mm. Does this do anything like detrimental to her character or is this like how you because ex- she is faithful compared to Ulysses? It yes, but you've got to but look at the context of what she's being asked to do when she's being rebuked by her father and the people around her. She's being pressured to go marry somebody else. Nobody of none of these men want her. All these men are after her money. Right. And they're all ignoble, unvirtuous men. Mm -hmm. And she is trying to be in the absence of an example of a father. She is trying to be the example of a parent to her son. And, uh, you know, is, is trying to, save or keep up the house because remember she's also queen yep so i think that it shows the agency she has within the context you know yes she is saying i will still be your wife and i'm still yours and i guess that would technically take agency away from her because she's because the verbiage is possession but at the same time if you're saying I don't I don't know if the alternative is any better. I'm going to run off with one of these guys who basically wants to um, just yeah, take spend spend all my money. You know, like these, you know, it's it's you know, it's it's not. <laughs> and she is un, she is under no um, 
knowledge of, of what Odysseus has done. So I know. <laughs> she doesn't know that he's been basically oh, Calypso sexually for the last seven years. Um, so that aside, though, I, I think that if you consider the alternative and what these men are asking her to do, there is something to be said about the fact that she is resistant and saying, no, I am not going to do that. But it, it is a little bit of a gray area because it's like, well, I'm faithful to my husband and, you know, and, and we talk about that. You can talk about the double standard that exists in I the know. odyssey of, you know, of her and her husband. But at the same time, I, yeah, I can't say, well, she has no agency because she's staying with him. It's yeah, but, this, but, but Antonis, come on. Yeah. Like, you know, the, you gotta considering the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, like, imagine if she had done that, all the flack mm-hmm. she would have gotten and like here, <laughs> you know, here, Odysseus is doing, you know, going around the Mediterranean, but uh, spreading his seed, as they will. Yeah, no, I agree. What was my question? <laughs> oh, okay. Do you think that she yeah. has, um, do you think it takes away her agency because yeah. she's, all, I'll be Penelope wife yeah. to you, Ulysses, always. Oh, man. I guess I always, you know, the reason why I think it might have jumped out at me, and, and again, you know, I could have looked at the, the Latin to see what that is really saying. But mm-hmm. just like in romance novels or, you know, when someone says, you know, you're mine, I'm yours sort of thing. And yes, I suppose it might be mutual, but I don't know if, has Odysseus really ever said, like, Penelope, I'm yours? And so that's why it, like, almost makes me bristle at that whole thing. So I just, like, that, and I totally get, you know, given out of context, like, oh, man, it's bad, but in context of what's actually happening, that she doesn't want to be Antonis's, she wants to be Odysseus, like, I totally get that. I guess just me and my feminist nature is like, well, Penelope, you can be your own, too. Yeah, yeah, she is. She is though, as because I'm, I'm, I've got it on the page right here, and she is displaying the bitterness she has to him being away. Though, yeah, you know, this is not she. She misses him and she loves him, but she's not as doting as it would come off. Crying, sitting in the windowsill, crying in the rain, <laughs> you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, she is, uh, you know. It, what should I say of you, how you shamefully absent yep. nourish Pisander, Polybus, cruel me the greedy hands of Eure- Eurymachus and Antinous and all others, all of them with your blood. You know, this idea that like, she's kind of finding fault at the fact that he's away, you know, so she's mad and she's mad at them and she's mad at him too. So yep. there's, I, I like the complexity that he gives her. Yeah in terms of in terms of the emotion i mean she even calls him you know ulysses the so long delayed so in the first line yeah there's a jab at like this so you know this is going to be the tone of the novel (laughs) or not the novel the epistle so yeah totally well dido even though i could ask so many questions on dido (laughs) the I so I read both all of them uh, twice, and with Dido is really interesting because in the Aeneid she says, "If only I would have a little Aeneas, so that I could look upon him and see you." Um, so that would give her comfort if if he had gone, if she were pregnant. Mm-hmm. In this, it's really insinuating that she is in fact pregnant. In that in killing herself, she's also killing his unborn child. And I've read it twice. Do you get that? Do you get that as well? Kind of do. Yeah. How contemporary was Ovid to Virgil again? 
minor overall. So Virgil would have like this. Well, I, I was going to say finished, but we know that it wasn't. Would have had this out by the time that all of it is. Okay. So Virgil's a little bit before. All right. Um, but it's not like Homer. I wonder if I could find this. Uh, you at yes. Oh, I found it. Wicked Man. Yes, Wicked Man. You abandon both pregnant Dido and that part of you hidden enclosed by my body. You add the infant's death to the unhappy mother's. You'll be author of the funeral of your unborn child. Ugh, Ulysses' brother will die with his mother. So, yikes. So, ugh, so many questions here. I guess mm. Ovid taking that. So here's something. He does do a what if, potentially. Because mm-hmm. I feel like maybe there's a suspicion that she could be, but the grammar in there, it uses a subjunctive, which is basically like there's so much doubt in there. And she says, if only dot, dot, dot. So it's a conditional. So it's unlikely to happen. Maybe it's possible. But he takes it as, yes, she is. So I guess I'll ask two questions. You know, Why does he do this? Why does he make it, I guess, more clear that she could be pregnant? And then because of this, do you feel like this casts a... a a bad light on Dido because she's about she she's Ooh, willingly gonna you know commit suicide question. or Aeneas because Aeneas is now abandoning her and we don't know if Aeneas knows that she's pregnant or not so I guess intention authorial intention of, of why Ovid would go this direction and then uh, just from something that is hinted but is is doubtful so he takes it I guess this was one of the the things that we talked about so he does take it a bit a step farther and, and I just wonder oh gosh who's who's the bad guy in this situation oh this I'm gonna tackle the second one first sure. um <laughs> I don't know who's worse. I, I'm going to assume that Aeneas didn't know. And now it's 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 strange because it's it's her, you know, it's her her choice of what she's yep. doing. But at the same time, she's doing this to get back at him. It's it's pretty complicated. I don't think either of them come out looking good in this particular no. instance. The The pregnancy I'm going to totally go with comic book type of stuff here. This comes off as like a writer coming in later after the original, right? Like, you know, like, so, so this comes off as like, um, Oh, I don't know. Um, Roy Thomas or Marv Wolfman writing the, the Aeneid and then Jeff Johns coming in a few years later and picking up this one thread that was ambiguous enough and saying that ah, she was pregnant and going with it like that. Like, you know, the kind of like weird continuity thing where another writer takes over a superhero title. And I know that's such a, such a dumb thing to say <laughs> on, a, on a podcast about classics here. But I'm just like it, it just it sounds like, you know, the new writing team has come in and they're going to um, they're going to take it. I, am I am I wrong on that or am I, no. am I just grasping at straws? But here? it's just interesting that we were basically saying, like, he hasn't his hands have been tied and he has to do certain things. But here he takes mm-hmm. some liberties, I suppose. Mm hmm. Or yeah, it just taking... makes me rethink, like, the Aeneid, like, oh, gosh, am I wrong? Is she actually? But know. the grammar is leading me to believe that she's not. Yeah. So maybe he is. And, and he, she, he's taking the liberties only so much that it fits within the actual continuity of the actual story. Yeah. So he's not he is taking liberties of something that is speculative enough that the outcome is still the same. Mm-hmm. It just makes things seem worse. Like it's not like he had Penelope sleep with Antonis. Yeah. You know, like because <laughs> that would have been a completely sure like 
totally turned it on its head. This was um, maybe ambiguous enough in the original text that he just gave it some certainty and, and ran with it for about as far as he could to make it seem more tragic. Mm. And I imagine that's maybe his point. He wants it to seem even more tragic than it is. Yeah. It does contradict the source material a bit, though, because she said, mm. if only I were pregnant, then, like, it'd be okay. Mm. And clearly, she's not okay, and she is pregnant, so mm-hmm. she didn't have to die. <laughs> so that's the only, like, man, if you're going to yeah. go this route, you know, make it a bit more. But, yeah, it's, I guess he is ramping it up. Yeah. But then I kind of compare it to Medea, and he mm-hmm. does not go that far. He stops it. So it's interesting to what extent... He's willing to go for each of the characters. I'm curious as to what his motivation for doing that with with Dido and not Medea was. I don't. I mean, we don't know. We I mean, don't. Yeah. You know. And it's he gives her one murder, which was her brother. But perhaps, yeah, yeah he didn't want to go that way. But it's you know, I guess it's technically still infanticide, even though they're children and not babies with Medea. But here we've got, yeah. Oof. Uh, yeah, so I agree. Making it more tragic, I, it just sort of baffles. I, it blows my mind. I kind of was thinking about it for a while. And my other question was, oh gosh, yeah. This See, this is the thing that I really struggle with the Dido letter, is that I feel like there are positive aspects to it, but the mm-hmm. end is still going to be the same. And so now, wait, she's not just killing herself. She's killing her unborn child, and then her yeah. gravestone is like all about Aeneas, isn't it? What does she mm-hmm. say? Do not write Sicaeus as Aeneas. So she's not even. She's only assigned to a man. She could have been Queen Dido of Carthage. Aeneas. This is on my marble tomb. Aeneas offered a reason to die, and the sword. Dido killed herself by her own hand. Okay, Dido. So that's the disappointing one. But actually, now that I'm thinking about this, could this be another dig at Cleopatra? Mm. Because remember that this is, what is it called, an analog? Is that what that term is? Or it's just, it's supposed to represent her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that the reason why it's maybe a bit more dire than Medea? Like, let's show, look at this. Medea, we don't even see that. We see her, all this other stuff. But Dido, she's such a barbarian. She's pregnant. She doesn't care. She's going to kill herself. Could this be that kind of thing, like a motivation, a political motivation? It it is contemporary because Cleopatra killed herself, I believe, right? Uh, my 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 knowledge of the death of Cleopatra comes through Shakespeare's play, so yeah. it's the asp. And um, you know, and this was after Antony had died. So, and Augustus, who was the emperor at the time when this was written, right, um, yep. was the opposing general because yeah. he was Octavian back then, right? Mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. he was the opposing general in the civil war against Antony. So, uh, that tracks. I guess so that could be the reason why. So as much as I love Dido, I guess it's just not in the cards for her to have a positive story <laughs> because mm-hmm. of, yeah, of that, that she's uh, connecting. Is it Carthage in North Africa? Yes. Yeah, so it geographically it kind of attracts to, like the analog works yeah. if, if it's an analog, if she's a standard for Cleopatra. Yeah. I mean, remember the Romans, the Punic Wars and all of that. So Yeah. 
Okay, well, I guess maybe we've solved something. We've so- we've answered a question, which is more than Donovan and Harold do on their show. <laughs> and I think last one with Medea, uh, and, and this was a question I think that we I could have had for all of them, just empathy, what sort of what level of empathy or maybe compassion you have for these characters. But Medea is, I think, of of the four that I chose, I think we can agree that she's probably the most problematic character, if only because we do know what she does with the kids and of course chopping up her brother but you know i feel like he's once again ovid is once again ahead of his time just in eliciting empathy for a problematic character as i see her she might not be as problematic for you is she Mm -hmm. really only problematic um in terms of this letter because of jason and things that he drives her to do does she deserve our empathy is that a good question i'm trying to think of what i was meaning by this when i wrote this question because i think i think it gets into the it gets starts to get to the root of the issue that i actually have with the word problematic Um, or the way it's or the way it's well, the way it's used in our modern social Ooh. media context, okay. because it's used in a way that is very dismissive mm-hmm. of somebody. Now, there are people who are problematic, who are terrible people and deserve to get that label. So I'm not saying that the, the, the word is an issue. It's just that it, it's it's used in a way to just kind of write off and say, ah, you know, kind of throw them into the trash bin. And in some cases, it's like, yeah, maybe this work of literature or film, especially, or, or whatever is, is not really is kind of worth being put aside. And maybe something else needs to kind of slide into its place on the cultural canon or whatever but what he's doing here is like you have a problematic character he's he is she's problematic because of her actions but he's trying to shed some humanity on these people yeah or flesh them out make them more three-dimensional and the more three-dimensional you make a character or historical figure or anybody the more you end up the more empathy you get for them even or you know, or understanding it of them, even if in the end you still consider them a problem. Yeah. And I think the true definition of problematic is that is that this person is, you know, perhaps their place in our culture is problematic um, and because of who they are. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a more nuanced definition. But the word problematic has also come to just basically being trash. And in when we're talking like Twitter mm. and that's kind of the problem that I have with the word. It's gotcha. like, you know you know and and use it with some nuance sure. take take like if you say this person is problematic let's explore while they're problematic let's explore who they are and come to an understanding of how they got that way what motivated to do them and it may not change our opinion of that person as a terrible person or whatever or a terrible character yeah. but at least we have some more understanding rather than just outright dismissing them yeah yeah, so I guess when I say yeah, problematic. I mean, and I'm not I'm not coming down on you. It has nothing to do with you. I just you know we've we, the word has been thrown around. The word has lost a lot of power in sure. recent years too because it's overused and it's yeah. and I think it's misused because it's used without a lot of nuance. Yeah, to it. I guess when I I think of problematic, like my use of this is that I feel like Medea is not. I don't think she's an evil person. I think mm-hmm. that she makes some poor decisions and mm-hmm. so i i feel like her character is complicated because uh, i think yeah. people might need jerk say like she's a terrible person she's evil mm-hmm. she's bad just because you know she killed her children but i think there's a lot going on that like you you 
sure, you can look at that and make that judgment, but what about all this other stuff? So looking at it in context. And now, please, do not read this or listen to me saying as like people who, you know, kill their children are not terrible <laughs> people. I'm not saying that, but I think there's like also a lot of stuff that you still I, – I, no, those people might still deserve empathy and you have to understand like oh man this was really bad I don't agree with it um, and condemn it but also understand what that went through so that's what I kind of yeah. meant for problematic but I, do, I but, feel like this I don't know I, I felt like even knowing what she does and, and she does talk about her brother and what she did there that um, I do I do feel some I feel I think it is empathy because I a mm -hmm. lot of these also I feel I think sympathy for them like I just feel bad for them about bad yeah. for these women and you know she's talking about being abandoned like Jason seems, seems like trash I mean he just leaves her for somebody oh. else but uh, I, I at least like feel I feel something for her and so I, I think Ovid does a good job of that and and for all the other ones as well, I think maybe Medea would have just been the most difficult one to potentially feel something for, knowing what she had done. Mm -hmm. So that's I guess where my question was was coming coming from. But here, yeah, it's easier I think to have those feelings. And I like the definition you were just giving a problematic is more in line along the lines of what I was talking about. Gotcha. Yeah. Like that I preferred. Like you know, like sure. I said, I get, I get tired of. I, I just get tired of misuse of things like that or just yeah. very light or, or very just quick lack of nuanced ways of thinking about these things. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know what's – Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. I was just going to say like Devereaux oh. would be someone I would consider a problematic mm -hmm. character just that he's got this aspect to his character – where he raped yeah. that girl. I think he raped her and then burned the whole building mm -hmm. down. So it killed multiple people. That's like, well, that's mm -hmm. bad. But, uh, you know, there are all these other aspects of him that make him endearing yeah. to us as readers. So that's like what I consider like yeah. an aspect of someone's character that is troubling. Well, and, and, and I'm trying to remember the circumstances under which Medea kills her children. Cause it's been a very long time since I read Euripides play, but um, it does make me think of, uh, I know you're not a big fan of the novel Beloved, but it mm. makes me think of Setha, and she she killed one of her children in an act of desperation because she intended to kill all of her children um, because the uh, school, school school teacher and the slave uh, driver had come to get her after she had escaped, mm. and she was like her motivation for slitting Beloved's throat was I'm not going to let them take you yeah. you know it was there was if See, you look at her motivations for yeah. killing her daughter it is it, it's an act of of possible mercy in that sense of like trying to save her from that life that she had just escaped um which would have been even more cruel you know she was she was viciously assaulted at one point in that you know prior to escaping mm -hmm. and so so i think of that and i would not consider setha a cruel person mm -hmm. um, then again a lot of that novel is dealing her dealing with the grief and the trauma that came from you know the life she fled to so there's there's also that there's an enormous amount of empathy you have for mm -hmm. for her because yeah. more that's what morrison does so mm. but yeah that's what yeah there you go okay i think my last oh forgot to talk about family okay i don't know i might skip it go ahead Okay, well, I, I should have done it with the Paris and Helen. Mm. Um, but I guess it's true. 
It's true with all of them. Family lines, yes, family lines is certainly a theme that we could find in all the epistles chosen, uh, but it's especially, I say it's especially highlighted uh, in the double letter, um, mm. but we could just talk about it as a whole with all four if you would like. Why do you think there's lots of focus on family, uh, the children, um, the unborn children, and then with Paris and Helen, my gosh, Paris goes through, like, <laughs> listen to my family tree. Helen's like, okay, you're distant. Jupiter's five off from it's you, like and Jupiter's actually my father. So it's it was like a ridiculous like, thing of what they were like, doing, like measuring. It's like, um, it's like Genesis. It you was know, interesting, so yeah. God, so so <laughs> what do you what are your thoughts, I guess, on using the theme of family? And children in all the letters that we read, but why do you think it was so highlighted in the double letter? What was the purpose of that? Well, I, I, on the one hand, I think Paris is just trying to pump himself up. He's like, <laughs> you know, you know I'm, I'm, you know, drop that zero and get with the hero. You know, to, to, quote, to quote, to quote Vanilla Ice. But I also think, like, I think of that's a that's essentially a motif in in classic literature, is it not? Like, especially in the Odyssey, it's like when when Odysseus introduces himself to Alcinous at the court of Phaeacia, he calls himself Laertes' son. You know, so the idea of family lineage and you know, which is a theme running through the Odyssey, it is, it is. It just to me, it just kind of read as in line with everything else that I've read from from the classics, from ancient Greece and in Rome. The idea that there is that it's it's very valued and and your son your wife your your lineage and who you come from and who you are is is very important to who your character is and what your standing is throughout the uh um yeah after all Telemachus goes around Greece and everybody knows who this kid is and and everybody has this that respect because it's of his father so so yeah it's I just I just thought it just fell in line with what you know what what Homer would have written what or wrote back in uh, the Odyssey yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it, it comes down to culture at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just how important heirs are and, and that they will – they're used to create alliances, uh, mm -hmm. marriage and things like that, and they – gosh, yeah, using it as a threat or as a weapon is really interesting as well. Um, but we have two women, I guess, that did it. <laughs> Or one that potentially did it and one that definitely did it. With with Paris, my gosh. Yeah, I I, I suppose it's posturing. It's posturing. I think <laughs> he's really got to make his case, though, because she's leaving. I mean, he. I don't think he even talks about – she briefly mentions it, but there were so many suitors that came after her. And basically, when the person was chosen, like, everyone had to agree that they would defend him slash her if anything ever happened. So there's, like, it's political and it's war involved with that choice. So he's, I think, really got to make it reasonable or uh, this is a good reason for you to choose me. I'm connected to Z Jupiter. So I guess that's that's one of the, the reasons why. But it's funny that she said, well, you're five off from him and I'm actually one off. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, intriguing, that one of all the ones. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, yeah. Penelope, she doesn't have a connection to a god. I guess maybe that's where they stand out because Helen yeah, and Paris probably. have a connection to the actual gods, whereas the others are mm -hmm. average, everyday human beings. So maybe that's that is that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah that is really. And Alvin good point. has that freedom to do that. But but I I totally agree with you. I think there is some posturing there. 
<laughs> Ooh, man. He's so arrogant. He does come off worse arrogant. than normal, yeah. I mean, Orlando Bloom does a good oh, job a of bro. like, oh, this guy. Have you seen Troy? <laughs> oh, a long time okay. ago. And they got like the most like, apparently that actress had to gain weight to play her. Really? Yeah. Kruger. Was, Diane Kruger? Because I was looking, I was... Yeah, I was I was looking it up earlier tonight. I was like, have has because I was trying to figure out why is Helen of Troy always blonde, but apparently she's always, she's described as fair haired in um in Greek literature because it always bugged me. They got like the most Aryan possible person to play a Greek woman, yeah. but then again they got freaking Brad Pitt to play Achilles. So yeah. it's like you know let's let's just err on the side of Aryan whiteness, sure. but because yeah. at least in in um. In that Odyssey movie we we referred to at the top of the episode, yeah. you know, Armando Sante, I believe, was Italian, mm, yeah, or, or or of Greek, like Greta Sachi, who played Penelope, was um, Italian, yeah. which is you know, which is not too far from Greek. You know, it's Mediterranean. It's so like they, they and they they cast a number of Greek actors, yeah. and like the the actress who played his mother was was Greek, and you know, so they they did a pretty good job of casting that movie, yeah. Isabella Rossellini played Athena. Isabella Rossellini played yeah. Athena. Now Eric Roberts plays Eric Roberts plays Antonis, and he's so good as Antonis because he a is just so arrogant, such a just jerk, and b has the most magnificent mullet, <laughs> um, the side of a '90s comic. Yeah. So it was just you know, but um, but yeah, so there and 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 the but yeah, but I just think of Troy and I'm like Orlando Bloom and Brad Pitt yeah. and like Eric Bana was the only person who I could see as almost Greek looking, even though he's Australian. It's like recast that movie, please. Yeah, it's pretty white it look ethnically accurate. Yeah, there God. is. So there's a Troy. I'm trying to think of what it's actually called, The Fall of Troy or just Troy on Netflix. Mm. That's just a limited series. And so they actually have several black actors. So Achilles is black. Patroclus is Mm. uh, black. So they I feel like that one's, you know, like, oh, this is good diversity. But also they're the Mediterranean, so they would be darker. That's good. So I feel like they do a better job. But yeah, I guess I blame Hollywood maybe initially. True. You know, although one of the f- famous, most contemporary Greek characters um, was played by Linda Carter, who is not Greek, uh, but I'm never, gonna, I'm never going to fault Linda Carter for being cast as Wonder Woman. So. There's some TV film that I caught only a snippet of, and the worst snippet to ever catch. And I was probably in my teens. I think it's called Helen of Sparta, or it's Helen of Troy, mm-hmm. and I guess it's her return trip. But the part I she was raped in the middle of like Sparta, uh, and I thought, what is this? Uh, and it's like a TV film, or you know, you could look it up. There's a well-known actor yeah. that I can't remember his name, and I thought, number one, did this happen? Number two, why is this happening right now? I'm gonna have to do one of those warnings, I think, with this um, <laughs> with this episode that we talk about rape and sexual assault. And we've had we've had that conversation. I think I I can't remember if it was. I'm pretty sure at one point on one of our episodes is like I talked about how much I can't stand it when there is rape in a story, yeah. especially when it doesn't seem like it's necessary. Like that's stupid. It's stupid to say rape is necessary, but like, you know, it just seems like you really, really have to dig deep to find the necessity of the use of rape in any, in any novel, play, book, anything like that. Like, you know, I guess I would give it a pass if it was a historical accuracy, yeah. you know, 
or in the case of something like like Beloved, it that there's a it's it's for a demonstration of cruelty on a level that is necessary to show cruelty. We have to go there, but that's like that one percent of the time. I get so just more and more as I get older, viscerally angry when I have to see when I'm watching something and there's like, oh, here comes the sexual assault. I'm like, are you kidding yeah. me? Why is this here? Yet, uh, it was a Helen of Troy. It's a TV miniseries from 2003. Mm. I, ugh, I don't know. Like, this is a discussion to have, you know, for another time. Yeah, Don yeah, and I yeah, talk about. Well, you listen to it, my shipper special, and and we talked about identity mm-hmm. crisis, and he had brought this up, and and afterwards I was wondering, like, no one wants to see it. Absolutely, I I told, and I shouldn't say no one because unfortunately we know that's not true. But uh, probably the better people don't want to see it. But I do wonder if it does anything positive in the fact that, unfortunately, rapes really do happen in real life. So if are if we show them, are we showing, you know, the real world and potentially educating? I don't know. I'm, like, trying to work through this. But I wonder if they're – and, and I, I, I'm really hesitant to say anything positive. But I just wonder, you know, if we never showed this, which would be fine mm-hmm. with me, but if we never showed it, would that be – sort of naive and and making it seem like this doesn't exist in real life either yeah because you know there's that i know we we like escapism Uh, but we also there's this line where we also like realism as well and so i I just wonder is there anything that it is doing to portray that hey guys we have a real problem sexual assault is real rape is real and and showing that i i don't know i i'm trying to work through that but that was something i started thinking about when don and i recorded yeah, and 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 this is this is this this really is a discussion that we could have. <laughs> yeah. with, like we could bring examples and everything. Yeah. It really is a. It, it would be a very very tough episode to record mm-hmm. because there. I think you have a really good point. You don't want to completely hide it away because you don't because then that becomes almost denial. And but at the same time, there's uh, I, you know context matters. I feel that in some film, especially. There's a tendency toward it's almost like a gaze put on mm. it with some directors, like where they they almost overdo it to the point of this is what I like. I don't think they're you know, you wonder if they are actually getting pleasure out of filming this, you know, so I think I think there's varying degrees on it. It's a little more nuanced than, you know, but but I do. But there are, you know, and um, I have I have issues with identity crisis where I think it's half of a good story but that's for another, <laughs> another again, time for yeah. another day yeah. yeah maybe we'll cover it i don't know yeah. uh, it is not my pick for next episode by no the way worries, so don't worry yeah. so but all that to say you know just with helen and everything yeah. so watch the media yes, that you yes. consume in regards to helen mm-hmm. yeah although in like in like troy she's like barely there she's yeah. there but she's like she's she's window dressing essentially yeah unfortunately and and that that is how she is treated sometimes yeah. as well too yeah she's just kind of an object yeah. okay well i think we're all through my questions i think we did all of them practically i just wondered mm-hmm. uh, especially i think coming from you well no i that's that's offensive but uh <laughs> Because I was thinking, oh, he's only he only really knows Penelope. But you said you read Medea and you've read the Aeneid, so you're closer to me than I originally thought. So I apologize for my offensive comment. But do you feel like readers who are not well versed? So you know, had I given you mm. 
someone like Dianara and uh, Hercules, who aren't well-versed in subject matter or mythology, do you think they can still enjoy these? I think it's possible because it might, if they in, because if they read them and they find them interesting, it might cause them to seek out the companion story. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that is possible. I I agree. I, I think at times. You know, I'm just thinking like Penelope, you might be confused mm-hmm. if you don't know what's going on. I think uh, there might be some confusement, but I know that's not a word, but I, I, he does a good job of giving exposition to a certain extent, because I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about Dido. Like she talks about her history. She talks about Aeneas and his trouble at sea and he lands and all of this stuff. So he gives mm-hmm. enough exposition that if you're reading closely, as you should, then you should understand the story more or less. And I think that's true of um, all of them. I mean, Medea, she goes through all his challenges. So I feel like you get a good sense. I think there are certainly, there were times that I was looking up some of the references to to better understand what is she talking about right here? Or what is he talking about? Yeah. So there, you know, even for a classicist, you know, there are some things that I would have to look up to better understand um, what's being said. But yeah, I, I think that they can. I think maybe some of the more obscure people that are popping out, because there are some people on in the epistles that I had not heard of, then you might be, uh, you might struggle for it. But yeah, like a gateway, I think, um, as Tom mm-hmm. is saying, is definitely... Definitely. Yeah, it works. Yeah. It's like coming into the middle. Like, it's like finding a random episode of a television show that's been on for a couple of seasons and watching it. And you get enough to figure out who these people are and you get enough to figure out what their stories are. And you leave it and you're like, I want to see more of that. And you start digging into past episodes or past issues. It's like it it kind of it kind of is like that, at least to me. But then again, again, I'm putting into a modern context of comics and television and stuff. So which we've all done, too. Right. We've all picked up that one first episode of a long running something issue or whatever. And then we've we've seen the editorial note or we've seen the reference to something. And now we're like, oh, I want to go. I want to go read that story and stuff. So I think that's that. That's one of this work's strengths. Well, Tom, we made it. Mm-hmm. Well, is this required reading? In terms of, I think, I'm just going to go with what I was just saying. I think it's a good companion text in terms of classics. I don't know if I would recommend this on its own. <laughs> or or if somebody, if somebody asked me about it, I would say, yeah, go ahead and read it. But I, I think if I was going to tackle the Greeks, the Romans or whatever, there were, there would be things I would put in their hands first. And Tom, I heard you're going to do something with this. Oh yes. (laughs) Which is, which is use this in my class. Can you believe it? People, I made an impact on Tom and I think I even used that word correctly. Yeah. Like I said, I'm going to be using, I, I will more than likely be using Penelope's letter to Ulysses because I teach the Odyssey. I'm so happy to hear that. I think that I I wouldn't say that this is required reading. I think that there are totally there are others. uh, I think I, you know, I go for for others of Ovid's than this. However, companion piece is the best way to go. Yeah, I think if you're reading any of these works that then to have the female voice 
would be a, a great idea. I've given, unfortunately, I haven't had time to do, when I was teaching AP Latin, I didn't have time to, to focus on this Dido letter, but a couple mm-hmm. years I gave it as extra credit during spring break that if they wanted to read it. And I think as Aeneas, I think my response was right as Aeneas in response to Dido. I think that's what I did for my assignment um, rather than just do an essay kind of thing. So it, it was fun to at least bring it in there, but I would love to yeah, take some time out after book four and, and look at this or insert it in where it would deserve to be. But yepers. <gasps> okay, Tom, I think it's time for some feedback. It is. We have an email from our guest from episode 50, Professor Allen, who is writing about episode 49. (laughs) He says, Stella and Fella, in episode 49, you covered a novella. And, all right. (laughs) And wondered aloud aloud of what qualifies as a novella. Mm -hmm. Tom talked about a limited scope, less epic sweep, and similar narrative aspects. And that is certainly true. But I wanted to add that awards and prizes that are given out by organizations and literary magazines have definition based solely on word count. For example, the Science Fiction Writers of America uses the following definitions for the Nebula Awards. Short fiction is under 7,500 words. A novelette, it's it's the first time I've ever heard of that, is between 75 and 17,500 words. A novella is between 17,500 and 40,000 words, and a novel is over 40,000 words, uh, which, of course, if you're, un- if you're familiar with NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, which takes place every November, that's the challenge is 50,000 words in 30 days. Mm. So, the- so he says, keep up the good work and take care, Professor Allen, of uh, relatively geeky and dorkness to light. So thank you for the clarification. Yeah, and on the Facebook, though, Tom didn't include it, but Joe... Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. Joe Crawford, I'm pretty sure, he mentioned that this new book that's coming out called The Smash Up by, I think it's Allie Benjamin and not Ollie. Uh, yes, it's Allie Benjamin. I had to see if she was female mm-hmm. or not is based off of it's coming out on the 23rd so soon oh well the 23rd of february i forgot this will be released in march so it's out now it's out now guys uh, but it is a modern take on ethan from so if you enjoyed ethan from which tom did not then you could potentially i enjoyed it more than i did when i was in high oh, school oh that's good so you're, rem- you're missing you're misremembering <laughs> So we, yeah, I'm interested in that. So I put on my Goodreads right away. Just, yeah, I might check it out. Maybe the, li- I, I don't think I would like to buy it, but maybe the library will, will get it in. But I'm interested to see what a modern take on Ethan Frome looks like. And that's it, I guess. Uh, that is, uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious yeah. about that. Uh, okay, Tom, I think it's time for you to tell us what we are going to be reading <laughs> next month yes i don't wonder if this qualifies as a, no, as a no, novella Uh-oh. because it is short work. so it's a short fiction uh no it is not fiction it's actually a memoir um a and it is uh night by <gasps> Ilivi oh my heavens yes okay we're finally doing it yeah so yeah. basically it's going to be a sad month 
Yeah, I know. I apologize. Okay. No, I mean, we, we can do it. We can do it, people. I mean, it's a yeah. worthwhile yeah. piece of literature. Night, Ellie Wiesel. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that. So. <sighs> Okie dokie. Yeah. So um, if you uh, – we always love feedback, um, especially on – this episode and and more other recent episodes so once again um send it our way and uh don't forget to leave reviews and all that other stuff and uh, i think that's about it uh so um if you are interested in reading going back and reading this um i will um if i have not already as of this recording i have not but um but i will have posted a um link to a public domain copy of this in pdf format uh that you can that you can find and that's not night i mean the uh the herodides 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 enunciation me fail english that's impossible herodides uh he's teaching your kids people (laughs) ah it's late. I've been on Zoom all day, so uh, I will I will I will repost that for anybody who is interested in uh, in in going back and reading this. It is uh, you can find it easily in PDF format on the internet and won't have to pay for it. So, and other than that, um, we thank you very much for listening, and uh, as always, take care. And if you have the choice. Maybe don't start up a romance with a sorceress, but if you decide to do that, maybe don't decide to betray her and abandon her for somebody else, because it's not going to end well. No. (laughs) Goodbye! Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility. So if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Hey. You interrupted me while I was watching cat videos on the YouTube. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's okay. You know, I, I decided that's... that you were a priority, so I, I shut it down. Uh, what a what a mid-2000s <laughs> thing to do. Please. It's an always thing that you can do. Unless you despise <laughs> cats, in which case you're not going to want to do that. <laughs>